Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 116. I'm also involved in a number of projects for the World Bank Group, the IFC as well, which has or supports projects on factoring in Georgia, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. I'm aware of several projects in Africa, for instance, Nigeria. Hello and welcome to Trade Finance Talks. My name is Pesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. In today's podcast, we'll be diving deep into the factoring law recently enacted in the United Arab Emirates or UAE. The UAE factoring law was introduced back in 2020 and governs factoring transactions across the UAE. Factoring is a financial transaction where a business sells its accounts receivable to a third party at a discount in order to receive cash quickly. It's a really important part of the trade finance ecosystem. And though factoring is a popular tool in the UAE, the new law has caused a stir in the industry. And it's quite a nuanced topic, which we're going to discuss in more detail. So with that in mind, I'm delighted to introduce Marek Dubovex to help TFG understand the UAE factoring law, discussing its potential on business and also the wider factoring industry, both within the UAE and globally. Marek, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Hi Deepesh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. So quick introduction, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? I'm originally from Slovakia, but I have been living in Arizona, Tucson for about 20 years now. I am a director of law reform programs, the International Law Institute, which is based in Washington, D.C. I also teach uh, two courses um, at the James E. Rogers College of Law at the University of uh, Arizona. And I have been doing law reform projects around the world for about 15 or so years, having written laws for over 20 countries on factoring, warehouse receipts and secure transactions. Brilliant. Thank you. What an accolade and what an accomplishment to you. Congratulations. So to start with, and just to set the stage for the rest of the podcast, can you tell our readers and give us a brief overview of what factoring actually is? Absolutely. And actually, in in your introductory remarks, you already provided a very good uh, explanation of fundamentals (laughs) of factoring, just to amplify and uh, explain further some of those aspects. As you said yourself, factoring is the financing of receivables, which typically arise from trade-related transactions, uh, such as the sale of goods or provision of uh, services. And then those uh, receivables are transferred uh, to a factor that may be a bank or a non-bank financial institution. Traditionally, factoring entailed absolute assignments or outright transfers of receivables or in business parlance, purchase of receivables. But uh, more recently, those transfers uh, have been extended to also encompass security assignments and pledges, uh, which I'm then happy to explain in more detail when we discuss the UAE framework. And uh, additional new development concerns the types of receivables as traditionally those receivables in factoring were trade related. Uh, However, as we'll discuss later, the Unidra model law on factoring, for instance, covers uh, receivables that arise from the use or license of intellectual property rights or data 
transactions, which are the new types of receivables that factoring companies are interested in. So really, we're talking here about that purchase assignment and transfer of receivables. And as you said, we'll go into that in a bit more detail. But why does this matter with respect to the law? Is it around international standards? Are there other pieces? Yes. And in fact, there are at least four international standards uh, that to some extent cover factoring. Going back to the 1980s, actually 1988, UNIDRA-ODAVA Convention on International Factoring covered some aspects of factoring transactions, particularly in the cross-border context. However, it did not cover many important issues such as priorities among competing factoring companies or the law actually that applies to cross-border transactions. Then in 2001, the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, which is the entity that is very familiar to your listeners, particularly from the podcast on the MLETR, so the same entity uh, adopted the uh, Assignment of Receivables uh, Convention. It's and both of these instruments are international treaties that unfortunately have not been widely ratified. Uh, and then in 2016, UNCTRA adopted the model law on secured transactions, which contains an elaborate set of rules on transfers of receivables that could be the backbone of for factoring transactions. And very recently, and in fact, the adoption of the model law on factoring by UNIDRA is expected next month in a couple of weeks, where we would have a dedicated regime for the factoring of receivables. And this uh, model law was proposed by the World Bank Group in 2019 and was supported by FCI and several important industry players who also actively participated in a number of working group uh, meetings that led to the uh, elaboration and eventual adoption of the model law on factoring. So these are the four general international standards. Of course, the last two, particularly the uh, Antitrust model on secure transactions and now the Unidraw model on factoring are the most important ones. Thanks for spelling out those four different areas that touch the law. I guess now with respect to the UAE factoring law, can you talk us through what the benefits are and also perhaps give a bit of a history of how this law has developed within the UAE? In fact, uh, I got uh, engaged in UAE through a World Bank Group project um, shortly after its enactment of the Secure Transactions Law in 2016, when the UAE decided to reform and modernize its regime for the financing of movable assets, including receivables. But we quickly identified that the 2016 Secure Transactions Law contained some ambiguities and, and, and some gaps, so it might be useful before it is rolled out and widely used that would then uncover some of these deficiencies, it might be more useful to look into its revision, which we actually accomplished in, in 2020 and 2021, which led to the enactment of both the factoring law and the secure transactions law. Now, what's the relationship between these two regimes? In general, secure transaction law provides the framework also for factoring transactions. So for instance, here in the United States or in Canada, we have secure transactions laws that provide a sufficient uh, framework for factoring transactions. But many states, such as the UAE, 
have enacted a more rudimentary, so to speak, secure transactions law that does not cover every possible detail for factoring and similar financing transactions as a result of which at times there is a necessity to complement those rules in specialized regimes, such as the factoring law. So after we successfully ensured the enactment of uh, the secure transactions law, we started working on the factoring law, which were then enacted in 2020 and uh, 2021. Now, the factoring law covers all types of transfers of receivables, so it's not limited to absolute assignments or outright transfers of receivables, the classical factoring transaction, but it also applies to security transfers and pledges of receivables. What's uh, very important in these kinds of projects and with factoring laws is an exclusion of various other types of payment rights that may be governed by other regimes and that may, again, be familiar to your listeners. For instance, letters of credit are covered by other sets of laws and customs rules. Securities and negotiable instruments have their own regime. So it's very important to distinguish receivables from these other payment rights, which we did through a series of careful definitions. Another important element uh, worthy of highlighting in the factoring law is uh, the override of an anti-assignment clause. What it actually means is that a supplier enters into a sale contract with a buyer. The buyer is in such a position that it includes a clause that precludes a transfer of a receivable by the supplier to a third party, which, as you can imagine, has a negative impact on the possibility of factoring or financing those receivables. So the uh, UAE law includes a specific statutory provision that renders these clauses ineffective so that the supplier is actually able to get financing on the back of that receivable. And then just two more aspects, one concerning perfection or what we generally call third-party effectiveness, where many factoring laws in the past did not require any sort of a public notice, but the factoring law in the UAE requires a registration of a notice in a registry that is operated by the Emirates Development Bank so that there is a transparent market and a system for factoring companies to consult to ensure that the receivables they're financing have not been previously transferred to someone else. And then the final important aspect concerns applicable law, which is the law or rather a clause in the law that determines whether it is the law of UAE or some other law that may apply to a factoring transaction, which is quite important, especially in recently where factoring has become an international phenomenon when where many receivables are transferred across the borders. So it's important to determine whether it is the law of the UAE or some other law. And the UAE factoring law determines its application by the location of the transferor, which means if the supplier is located in the UAE, it's a UAE corporation, then the UAE factoring law would apply, even though, for instance, the factor might be a Dutch or some other European company. So those are some of the key features and novelties in the uh, factoring model for the UAE. Thank you very much for the detail. And it's quite an, an important nuance there. So essentially, it's an evolution of secured transactions to cover that factoring regime. And it only really talks and covers the transfer of receivables and pledges. It, it does exclude other products used in international trade. And there are several other points of worth mentioning. But I think that anti-assignment clause is quite important. Marek, why is this law actually important? And how does it differ across other countries? 
Okay, so it's important for several reasons. When actually going back to some of the historical evolution that we discussed a few minutes ago, and it's not too distant history, when some of these reforms were initiated in the UAE, at that time, the Federal Civil Code uh, governed factoring transactions, but in a very peculiar way, so to speak, uh, because uh, yeah, the Civil Code did not contain any provisions on transfers of rights. It contained provisions on transfers of debts. So if I owe you $50,000, I can transfer my obligation to pay you to someone else, which is, of course, not a factoring transaction. But the courts in the UAE then used these rules in the civil code to develop some guidance for factoring transactions. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of uh, uncertainty in the market at the time so that these laws that were subsequently enacted clarified that situation. Now, as for some of the differences uh, between this law and other laws that we have seen have been developed elsewhere. I'm engaged in a number of other factoring projects. To a large extent, these projects now follow the underlying principles for the Unidra model on factoring, which means they extend their scope of application to a variety of transfers not being limited to outright transfers and to different types of receivables not being limited to trade-related uh, uh, receivables. So there is a emerging uniformity and harmonization in the factoring regimes, understanding that at times countries need to take a different approach for one or another issue to ensure that the factoring regime is properly incorporated. For instance, I'm engaged in a project to develop a factoring law in Ukraine, where we have discussed with the central bank uh, that some of the transfers might need to be limited to outright transfers of receivables. But the general trend throughout the globe in all these projects is at least for all these projects to establish some kind of a public and uh, accessible registration system that determines priorities. And that seems to be a common theme in all of these projects. Some of the differences and peculiarities are driven primarily by the local variations in different aspects, as well as regulation of factoring transactions. Can you go into a bit more detail, give any examples of some of those new factoring laws or programs in other countries, such as, for example, the work you've been doing with the EBRD and, and how will those new laws impact those markets? Indeed, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development has been very active in supporting factoring laws in their EBRD regions, which would be Central Eastern Europe, but also in the Middle East. And in fact, I'm engaged in uh, two factoring projects in Jordan and West Bank and Gaza, which are very similar to the UAE framework in a sense that both of these countries adopted uh, secure transactions laws, which to some limited extent cover assignments of receivables or receivables financing. And now we are amplifying that framework with factoring laws. So essentially, same approach as in the UAE. And as I just mentioned, also involved in a project in the Ukraine. I'm also involved in a number of projects for the World Bank Group, the IFC as well, which has or supports projects on factoring in Georgia, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, I'm aware of several projects in Africa, for instance, Nigeria is in the process of enacting a, uh, a factoring law with the support of African uh, Exim Bank. So there is a flurry of reform activities in essentially 
every region of the world as these international financial institutions, and there are many others such as Asian Development Bank that support these kinds of projects, they have realized the importance of, of receivables finance. And just to illustrate how important receivables are for trade transactions, in 2020, uh, the Bank for International Settlements published a study which concluded that the volume of trade receivables exceeds the volume of corporate bonds. There are sophisticated frameworks for corporate bonds that enable larger businesses to obtain financing by the uh, issuance of corporate bonds and their use as collateral. And since the volume of trade receivables exceeds those volumes is an important vehicle or important asset for SMEs, the smaller or the mid-market, to uh, access financing. So it's important to provide an equally suitable and enabling legal framework and regulatory framework for factoring transactions. Thank you very much. And such an interesting point there, which really goes to show the importance of creating those factoring frameworks around trade receivables, given those volumes exceed those of corporate bonds around the world. So I guess given their importance, what can policymakers say do to ensure that there's more awareness around factoring laws? And I guess, how can they continue to lobby and provide more support for the development of these laws? That depends on the jurisdiction. For instance, in the UAE, the Ministry of Finance, and particularly Dr. Hussam from the Ministry of Finance, has taken a very active role in modernizing the overall commercial legal infrastructure for the UAE. So it's not only the factoring and secure transactions law, but the UAE also recently enacted a leasing law, a new insolvency framework, a framework for the resolution of disputes. So in these circumstances, it's much easier for the policymaker to include a factoring law within this broader package of commercial law reforms, while elsewhere this might be more complicated, particularly in those jurisdictions where some changes to the civil code may be necessitated, as the civil code is sort of like a constitution in many, is viewed as a constitution in many countries that is very difficult to amend. So uh, additional education is then required as to how the law, factoring law, should be, in fact, implemented. There is also a need for education and capacity building, both pre- and post-enactment. The pre-enactment capacity building essentially explains, and I do a lot of that, where, for instance, uh, we take a factoring transaction and we identify the relevant steps required by the law that must be taken to make the transfer effective, and then we identify the risks associated with the transaction, and then we compare that with a set of rules based on these international standards and what sort of steps would be required by those rules and what sort of risks would be eliminated had the country adopted a, a, a modern factoring law. And then, of course, post-enactment, um, it's very important to educate the industry, the judiciary, as well as any other users or stakeholders affected by the particular regime. And here, FCI has been doing a great deal of work educating primarily uh, the factoring companies and helping them develop practice. If we take a step back and also look at uh, some of your previous podcasts and the regimes that you have discussed uh, in the previous podcast, such as MLETR, the uh, educational piece becomes important, but also more complicated at the same time. As these countries 
enact or modernize various facets of their commercial law frameworks, it may become quite challenging for the user to understand all these new changes, number one, but more importantly, number two, to actually realize how all these changes in the legal framework coordinate between each other. For instance, you may have a trade finance transaction based on electronic transferable record on MLETR, such as a, a warehouse receipt or a bill of lading, but then the instrument is eventually sold, commodity sold, which then generates some receivable. So you would need to have a good deal of coordination between the MLETR and the factoring laws to ensure that the financing can be provided throughout the transaction as the commodity moves through the supply chain, there is a need not just for the particular new law education, let us educate you on how these sets of rules apply, but there's an emphasis or there should be an emphasis on educating the users how a set of rules, different set of rules apply to one single transaction because it's very rare where just one law would apply to a single transaction. And just to give you one example in the context of factoring, Factoring, for instance, does not apply to a situation where I sell you some goods, you owe me $50,000, but I include a clause in our sale contract to say that I retain title, retain ownership to the goods that I sold to you until you pay the purchase price. In the meantime, you resell the goods and you factor that receivable to your financial institution while you don't pay me. So there is a conflict between my right to collect 50000 from you and the factor's right to collect the $50,000 receivable, which the factoring law does not resolve. This is outside its scope. This is a matter of some other law. So there are situations of this nature. This was just one example where broader capacity building beyond the factoring law is needed. Very interesting. And actually, if you take an even further step back, factoring as a concept and as a transaction hasn't really changed much over the past few decades, if not centuries, by having the legal or civil or judiciary framework to recognize factoring transactions properly. You can help bring in players from around the world, particularly in emerging and developing markets and have that solid framework in place, which really does bring in poorer and emerging economies into the global trading system. And you're totally right. As supply chains get more complex, they change over time. You have new parties participating in transactions. These laws really help aid that change, which is really interesting. Leading on to our final question, and thank you, Marek, so much for your insights and joining us on this. But how do you think the development of global factoring laws will help international trade in the future? What is your future-looking view, Marek? I'm very optimistic. The financing of trade has shifted over the past two decades away from trade finance instruments such as letters of credit and, and collections, more to open account financing where receivables are generated, which then necessitates suitable and enabling legal and regulatory framework to actually ensure that those receivables could be transferred and monetized or collateralized in these kinds of transactions. And this is the primary reason why countries are looking to modernize their factoring regimes. It's not a change that is necessitated by the fact that these laws are antiquated. It's more a practice-driven change, uh, which we always like to see in commercial transactions. So I would 
would uh, expect that more and more countries would embark on reforms of their factoring laws, which in turn would uh, enable factoring companies to do more and more in transactions and increase their volumes simply because they eliminate uh, a number of risks that currently exist in those types of transactions, which would then in turn enable smaller and even micro enterprises that do generate some receivables to actually obtain financing against those receivables. Thank you very much, Marek. And it's been such a pleasure having you on Trade Finance Talks, not only talking about the developments of the UAE factoring law, but also the wider global developments. And lovely to hear your optimism for the future. I think there are four key take-homes from this podcast. Firstly, the importance of the UNCITRAL and UNIDRA recommendations on model law around factoring and receivables. Secondly, the macroeconomic piece, that shift away from traditional documentary trade, ledger credit collections, etc., towards open accounts. And we really need the regulatory framework to adopt to the current times. And thirdly, the clear laws on receivables for when it comes to assignment, purchase, transfer, they need to be understood and they also need to be created because by doing so and by creating those clear frameworks, laws and definition, you can really help build an inclusive trading system for all countries to participate and recognize receivables at the same level. And finally, there's a really important piece around education and capacity building and understanding within various markets around the world to really truly help grow factoring as a real engine for economic growth, cross-border activity and prosperity. So Marek, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. It's been such a pleasure having you. Thank you, Deepesh. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 